there is a term for a cognitive distortion called disqualifying positive. Okay. Okay. And I'll go back to the Mario Kart, I promise. Yeah, yeah. But what that speaks to is the idea of making progress, but not allowing it to be celebrated. I've completed, I've, let's say I'm reading a book. I read 10, 10 pages today, but I should have read 20. Right? The comma but creates this cognitive distortion that doesn't allow you to have that dopamine created in your brain, and you're not reinforcing an action towards a larger goal. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of On The Run. This episode is a long time coming, and I think you'll understand why when you meet our guest today. Not only is he a licensed mental health professional, which is the first reason I wanted him on here, but he's also a former track coach of three years. My hope is that today's episode is not only entertaining, but educational and informative as well. So listen in to learn about the mind-body connection, the difference between running hurt versus running injured, and what motivated Chris to do what he does and help others. Without further ado, here is Chris Roberts. Welcome back, everyone. I am home for today's episode because we have a mental health professional. He is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and a national certified counselor. He spent, previously, he spent three years as a high school counselor before transitioning into this. And I didn't know it until a few weeks ago, but when he was a high school counselor, he was also a track coach, which obviously led me to a lot more questions for him. So today we have Chris Roberts. What's going on, man? How we doing? I'm good, man. Appreciate you having me on this. Yeah, and as I said, I'm I'm pumped to have you on because I I want this podcast to be well-rounded, you know, with a lot of mm-hmm. professionals, specialists who are good in their field. And you and I have talked about doing the podcast for a while, you know, and honestly, a lot I've done a lot more prep for this one than a lot of them because mm-hmm. I know that I want to be on my game. Um, I know you have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. But Absolutely. you're in your profession and your expertise is in mental health. And that is the original reason I wanted to have you on. But then a few weeks ago, I found out that you were also a track coach in mm-hmm. high school. And I had no idea. So once I realized that, I, uh, I had a few more questions to add. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, that was that was great. So, let's um, let's start with what made you want to choose the occupation that you're in. And I ask this because I believe I believe it takes a special person to do what you do. Um, I've had a therapist of my own before who made a big impact in my life, and it takes a special person to commit their occupation mm-hmm. to helping others sort and work through their own problems when everyone's working through something that you don't know about, including therapists. Absolutely. So like the fact that you're helping someone sort and work through their own issues whenever I'm sure you have some of your own, like that takes a special person. So thank you. So when did you know that you wanted to do something like this? Well, I think it's something that I always knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do it. 
Um, and that might not make sense, but I'll kind of elaborate on it. Like the idea that I always knew I wanted to be an advocate for people, assist people, care for people, um, and kind of be in the role of, I'm going to say protector. Um, and when I first began that journey, I grew up with generations of teachers, right? Mm. Now, I worked in the school system for three years. Um, I've not had a, I've, I student taught, I student taught fourth grade, actually. I was going to be an Whoa. elementary school teacher. Okay. Um, I was the only male in the entire building, actually. Um, and I loved it. It was so fun being able to be a, um, a role model and a resource for all of those, all of those kids. Um, and I wore a sweater vest almost every day and all the boys, when it was superhero day, actually wore a sweater vest with me. No way. Um, yep. So it was pretty awesome for a while. They called me, um, uh, Mr. Rogers instead of Mr. Roberts <laughs> without actually knowing the joke of it. So that was always a good time. But going back to your question. I think I always knew I wanted to kind of be someone that could care for others. And growing up, I kind of saw education as that way of doing it. Now, as I speak about like the mental health side of things, I have so much high regard for teachers. I want to make sure that that's incredibly clear. And I absolutely loved when I was doing the student teaching, when I was learning more about that opportunity. And some of the greatest people I've met in this world are doing that work right it, like you said it takes it takes an amazing person to be able to do that um and so what i did is as i went through my first year in college i was an elementary ed focus and i later added psychology so i actually double degreed uh with elementary ed and psychology and i wanted to learn more about what i could do with this degree what this focus was like because even though i loved working with schools and classes i loved working with people one-on-one -on -one. And I saw psychology as a way I could learn more about that. And then I had one of my professors that talked to me about counseling, talked to me about different options. I didn't know anything about grad school, right? I mean, that was something that I never really thought about necessarily until I started exploring this. And so I applied to Wake Forest, met some amazing people like Ryan and Lucas. We all, we all, we all went there. Um, but I went there. I still think they hit the wrong button and they were... They, sent me in by accident, but I'm still grateful <laughs> for it. Um, and that's where I started my journey about the one-on-one -on -one piece and being able to do what I always wanted to do, but figuring out what profession actually was that for me. That's awesome. And both of my parents are teachers. Mm -hmm. So that kind of hit a chord for me too. I, uh, nothing but respect for them. I mean, even when we moved away and they drive 40 minutes to work and and from work every day and mm -hmm. they they're actually both retiring this year and they've been doing it for 25 plus years and so i uh i grew up around teachers so right. I, I get i get that um so when you were student teaching everyone wore a sweater vest was that kind of the first glimpse into seeing how you could you know like impact someone and like not even just one person but an entire group well it, w it was pretty amazing because the idea of being like a role model for someone isn't something that always is going to be immediately gratifying, right? It's something that yeah. I'll speak about a little bit later, but I knew I was trying to be a good role model every day. And for me, that was internally gratifying, right? Mm -hmm. I was happy to do that. But it, it's those moments when you see all of your students come up wearing a sweater vest, trying to match you and say, today's mission is to dress up like someone you look up to. Why wouldn't I dress up like you? Like wow. those are the moments in the education. Um, and I can't speak for others, education system experience, but like 
I still have all of my uh, birthday cards that my students gave me when I was going through. Um, Some of the, I still have a soccer ball that my fourth grade uh, student teaching class bought me and all signed. And it was really funny. One memory I have of that was the idea I was going to keep the ball like in, like I was going to make sure it didn't get marked up or anything. And the person, the, the student that had got it for me, which I'm still grateful for, was like, well, why wouldn't you bring it to recess? And I was like, I was like, you know what? You're right. Like, this is something that we are going to be able to use together. So I, kids keep you on your toes. Um, and they, and some of the most hilarious and positive memories I have in my career are in those years of whether it be student teaching or in the school system. So that's kind of, that, that's awesome. And that's kind of what prompted you to go into the school system after college then, yep. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So when I went to wake there, um, you could kind of have a designation if you wanted to go more of a school counseling focus or a clinical mental health focus. And so what I did is I took, I believe it was one extra class. It was like two things that were a little bit different to ensure that I could apply for both. Mm. And I didn't go through the final steps for my clinical mental health um, license right away because I was going through the certification for the school counseling side. Mm -hmm. But later when I went to apply for the clinical, I had the credentials and I was able to go through that process. So did you do the the clinical side as well? So you keep your options open kind of thing? Yeah, I figured it was one of those things that I might as well keep every option open that I would want to pursue. And I wanted to start with the school, but I was definitely not in my head thinking I wouldn't in the future want to do clinical. And after a few years in the school, loving my experience, I I started to think about it. And I was like, this is going to be something that I definitely want to pursue. Very cool. Very cool. So not only were you helping kids when you started working at the school, but how did, how did you start coaching on the track team? How did that come to be? Coaching was, I'm going to say, like one of my favorite things. Like, and, and here's the reason why. When you are in the school system, it's so amazing how you can be a part of these students' lives. Like trying to be, whether it be a positive influence, talking to them about their day, just being a resource for them. And then being able to have a different way in which I could do that at the conclusion of a school day. And being able to maybe, I'm not going to necessarily, um, I would never like yell at an athlete or anything like that. But if I'm screaming across the track, like split times, mm-hmm. it's going to be a different voice, a different presentation than when I'm a school counselor. And so being able to build on some of the, um, the ways in which I could help student athletes, but also ensure that kind of the culture um, of that team was focusing on the idea of you're a student before an athlete, um, creating a culture and exemplifying and modeling that culture was a little bit of a newer experience for me. And I had to, so I actually had to focus. I was the distance coach. I want to, I don't want to speak above my scope or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say anything that's not true. And so I was more focused on the distance and the two head coaches that I had were brilliant. Uh, they gave me, they said, listen, we trust you. And honestly, they didn't have a reason to trust me. And I say that like with like all love for myself, but I didn't have a resume with coaching. And so they gave me full owner, full ownership of distance. And we started to have some really positive results because of the work my athletes were putting in. And it just was fun all around. I remember the first track meet that we went to the four by 800 is the first thing that we, we did. Mm -hmm. And it was the first track meet. 
the first race, and I, I think if I remember correctly, um, I know we won. I think the boys four by eight hundred. I'm not sure about the girls, but we were going nuts. Yeah. Like we were just having a good time, and like I was looking at some of my coaches, and we're like, I, "This is this is working, I guess." And so just being able to build on it, and being able to um, have a commitment of me committing to the work of preparing, and also my athletes committing to the process, it was a recipe for success. That's cool because it, as an athlete, you know, <laughs> whenever you work hard and you see your work come to fruition, it's awesome. But I bet as a coach, it's seeing your help for another athlete's work come to fruition is satisfying in a whole new way, I think. Oh, absolutely. It was one of those things that it's a little bit, I don't want to say scary, but it's the idea I, and this is something I, I say to some of my clients as well, is there's a difference between having control and having influence, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when you're an athlete, you have control. If you want to sprint the last 400 in a mile race, you have the ability to do that. If your legs will keep up with you, it's a different story, but that's a whole, that's right. a whole other right. thing. Yeah. But so you have, as an athlete, you have some control. As a coach, you don't always. You are trusting that the athletes will put in the effort that they have worked up to have. And so understanding that I was able to influence these athletes and the results they were doing was a result of the, um, their commitment to the process. Mm -hmm. And it, it was so fun to see it start, start to be created. I bet, dude, I bet that's awesome. But yeah, the lack of control would be crazy. It would be hard to, to watch and know that I couldn't do anything, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I'm sure it just teaches you to, I mean, teaches you lessons as well. Like, you know, you can teach them, coach them, teach them a process, but ultimately it's up to them and see what they want to do. Right. That's really cool. So <laughs> you said the the two coaches you worked with were great. What did you learn from them? And what did you learn in those three years that really like, and taking that into your professional life, how did that help you? So I think the influence versus control was one that I kind of learned from what they were doing. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of like, hey, well, this is something that we trust. They'll put in the work. They'll, they'll, they'll take this and process it and learn from it. One really funny thing that the guys head coach was doing, uh, and I made fun of this a year later, I would bring up these wild ideas, right? Like different like ways we'd order the four by hundred team, if we wanted to like stack certain things and over and over, he would, he would say the idea of that sounds great. And I wonder if we thought about this too. Right. Mm. So he never shot it down. He never shot it down. He never shot it down. And he, he always reinforced the idea of creativity. Oh, okay. And it wasn't until that next year I I called him out. I was like, do you know how dumb some of those ideas I had were? (laughs) Um, And he's like, oh, yeah, I know. I know. But once we talked about it, you weren't going to stay with them. And it was true. But he reinforced the idea of creativity. He reinforced. he, He said he loved that I was trying to learn this. I was trying to grow. And so he didn't want to, sh- he, he, if he shot down my idea, he saw it as shooting down the idea of being creative. Right. And then you, you, and then you feel dumb for mentioning anything and then you stop growing and you get embarrassed. And then it, that is a great lesson that you learned from him because it, it, you're trying to be creative. You're trying. And he saw that. 
Right. So like the last thing that he wanted to do was say anything that would deter you from keep trying. Right. And that's impressive because I feel like some people will be like, and without them even knowing, they'd be like, no, that means, okay. You know, they'd say, that's not a great idea because of this or mm-hmm. this. And, and not everyone, you know, takes that. Not everyone takes the lesson. They, they listen to how they say it too. And right. I think that that can kind of deter some people like that would, that would get to me. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that he said it to you is impressive, especially because, you know, he knew that you had the best intentions. You wanted to help him. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And it's the idea of like what was said, but what are you trying to communicate? Right. And like for him, he was saying one thing, but he's also trying to communicate the idea of, Hey, keep challenging yourself, keep mm-hmm. growing. And for a young coach, that was really, really big for myself. That's really cool. Wow. Interesting. Um, so not only, so you're helping all these students do a physical activity, right? And track. Mm-hmm. Did you have any kids that you counseled at school also run track? And so did you see like, you know, the mental, you know, them change mentally as well as physically at the same time? Yeah. So what my high school did is they split up by last name. And so I'm trying to think what it was from between the different counselors. Yeah. So we had three, we had three counselors. Um, so what I used to say for a saying, I'm going to say it might've been P. It was like, if, if it's P, if your last name's P through Z, you're stuck with me is what I, oh, what wow. I used to okay. say, but I was the end yeah. of the alphabet. And so there were some of these athletes that, that I was working with that I was also their school counselor. And there's a lot of cool aspects to having different roles. There also is trying to ensure that you're having boundaries in certain situations. Right. Mm, right. Um, and that was one thing I was very kind of clear with, whether it was, proactive communication. This is just a side note for things that I use for words with my clients is there's a difference. There's the same goal, but differences between proactive communication and boundary setting, right? If you are setting a boundary, there's times it can be kind of a reactive piece. Okay. Like, oh, well, in the future, I want to name this boundary as we move forward. Proactive communication is the idea of, hey, I recognize that you want to um, have this be a a well-worked relationship like i guess the example i sometimes say is if due to your past you didn't like being hugged it brings forth a little bit of panic or anxiety for yourself being able to proactively communicate to a partner if you want to be the best partner to me this is one thing i want to put in your awareness Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that's proactive communication you've set a boundary but you've done it done in a proactive nature where there's the kind of reactive side of after being hugged oh i actually want to communicate to you that is something i don't want in the future Mm -hmm. and so i just that was just a side note for things and different words that i use but i tried to be that way from the beginning i was very proactive in my communication of hey when i'm out here i'm your coach when I see you in there, I'm your school counselor, but no matter where I am and whatever role it is, I want to be in, I want to be an asset for you. I want to be able to be a resource. Um, but yeah, I never had any issues with the different roles, uh, because I had that clear from the beginning, but it was one thing that I made sure to talk about with them. So you did a good job of separating, you know, school with, with track, right? Was it, did you ever have any kids though that you know that you were counseling that you know didn't really have a physical sport that they were doing and you 
with your athletic background and your track background, knowing how much mental, no, how much like physical exertion can help you mentally. Was it hard not to try to get people into sports or into track at the same time? Yeah, it was difficult, like trying to find ways. One of the hardest things that is to be done for a school counselor, but also in my role now is motivation, right? A lot of times my clients will ask me about how can I go about being motivated? Mm. And I, I, I'll always present the same question of, well, what do, what do we find ourselves motivated towards? Mm. Right? right. It's kind of the idea of your, if you're in a vehicle and you don't have a GPS going, you don't necessarily know if you're getting closer to your ETA. Right. You're, you're, yeah. you're just driving. And I'm not right. saying that with a negative light, uh, but it's one thing to think about. So when it comes to the idea of trying to motivate some of my students, one of there's there's a few core ethics um like with the code of ethics that um my license is connected to and for like a mental health therapist and one is autonomy right okay and so the autonomy of inspiring someone to make their own decision Hmm. right Mm -hmm. being a part of their journey Hmm. and the same thing comes to the idea of well this person could step into a sport Right. Mm. I want to influence going back to the influence first control idea, but I also want to respect their autonomy. Right. And so trying to find ways um, kind of in a way, if they're speaking to curiosities, being a resource for those curiosities. I also wanted to make sure there wasn't any what's the word I would want to say here. Internal bias Mm -hmm. to track. Right. Like, for example, if I have someone who's like a great athlete that's coming through like a transfer to my high school and I'm scheduling them and they say, I'm debating between baseball and track. I might in my head be thinking, Hey man, if you want to come out for track, it'd be great. Um, but I tried to make sure that bias didn't impact me respecting the autonomy of them making their own choices. Very cool. Very nice. And I mean, so this was, you know, your life as a counselor and, and coaching track. What made you want to make that jump? from counselor to the clinical mental health counselor in the position you're in now? So one challenge that school counselors face is I had, I'm going to say maybe over 300 students that were mine. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to care for them Mm -hmm. and assist them and everything. And it's hard to do that for that number of individuals. And so... Exploring different options, I really thought about what I wanted to to do in the future, what I saw my future looking like, and it was something I became more curious about each year mm-hmm. of how can I step into this realm of the one-on-one therapy, being able to really dive into some deeper conversations because if I spent 30 minutes speaking with someone in the school, it was like, okay, well, that's a fair amount of time in connection to how many students I have. Right. And so it just kind of became something I, it was more, more of a desire than an interest, I guess I would say. And so making that switch was something it was, it was difficult. I won't lie mm. to you. Yeah. Um, there, there's one of the, one of the things that I might kind of like mention is the idea of social connectedness. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in my line of work, I communicate with the idea of a biopsychosocial lens, right? There's biological components of ourself, psychological components of ourself, and social components of ourself that impact 
our overall mental health, our well-being, all these different things. And one thing that was a social component for me in the school that I loved was the community. Hmm. I grew up with that, with that community. Yeah. Like, I mean, if we had power go out um, up north in Maine where I grew up, we were using the smart board in mom's elementary school, <laughs> right. uh, watching some, watching some movies on there. So like I was used to that community and going into a outpatient setting, there's different levels for mental health. And for myself, I'm in an outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of one-on-one conversations. Yeah. Um, it might've been Yalom, who's a, a, a theorist that, uh, within counseling that spoke to how being a therapist is one of the most what's the words I want to say here? Kind of not emotionally draining, but the most times in which you're in contact with another individual, Mm -hmm. you're not isolated, but it feels like the most isolating. Right. Because you don't have necessarily a community you're pulling from like I did in the school. So that was a major transition for me. Well, and yeah, that, and yes, I think it's cool because you have less clients you're working with, so you can give them more attention. Right. But at the same time, like you just said, you're spending all of your day on their problems, you know? Mm-hmm. So you, that, that has to be draining, you know, oh, yeah. I think. Did, was that a, was that a tough transition at first? I think it's more of an ongoing journey. Yeah. Um, there's a term for, uh, for therapists, vicarious trauma mm. and what it speaks to. So I work with a fair amount of trauma. Um, in my conversations, certain diagnoses that I work with, and being able to hear traumatic experiences, assist with some of the symptoms that come into play with that, and then be able to go home, right? right? right. I mean, better, put it away and then put go it away. Home. Better yet, end the hour and then begin another another hour, fresh with another individual, having that fresh space because you don't want to bring anyone else's. You want to have a individualized space for each of your clients. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want any uh, vicarious trauma or any aspects coming into play from previous sessions. Mm-hmm. And I try, I, I really strive to, if you're seeing me at nine in the morning or seeing me at 4 p.m., same I guy. want you to see the same guy. Interesting. Right? And sometimes that's more difficult than others. Uh, but the idea of vicarious trauma, and then there's the idea of transference and counter-transference. Hmm. Now, I had no idea what that meant until college, I'll be honest with you. I, this might be the first time I've heard it. <laughs> but so what it speaks to is like the idea of that internal bias, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being able to step into a space and not have there be any transference from your personal experience into the reality that you're stepping into of another person, hmm. right? Right. So... Um, like any, like, let's say you were bullied in the past and there's still anger and resentment you have to this individual that you are not aware of. And you're helping someone that's speaking to the idea of bullying and their reality. There can be transference to your, your memories or your perceptions into it. And the counter transference is how it can kind of be projected I was, um, onto I was, the therapist as well. I was going to ask this, correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds similar to what, people will talk about when they say projecting. Yes. Like you said. Yep, Is that very kind of similar? similar? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think it's there's different components to each, um, but it's a very similar process. It's okay. the idea of something about the emotional response is not congruent with the stimuli of the moment. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so they both they both kind of come into play. Right. So it, it, it's just an ongoing process, and I'll tell you this. You know a little bit about me. There's some days I leave work and I run. Right. There's some days I leave work and I go home and I 
put basketball cards in sleeves. Right. And it, it's because I'm introspective to what do I need at this time. So you got to be really tuned in with what you need at yeah. that point. That's impressive. Um, this, this every day, it sounds like you're almost getting ready for a game. Like you're getting yourself pumped, like not yeah. pumped up, but like prepared. You're mentally, physically, emotionally ready for the day. Not just the day, yeah. but each session separately. Right. Going in fresh. Mm-hmm ready to listen and take on whatever that person gives you. Do you right. have like a routine that you go through in the morning or like <laughs> maybe at lunchtime you go through something to reset yourself? Do you have anything like that? Well, and thinking about like running and uh, different physical self-care, I've tried to do some of those things in the morning mm-hmm. and I found it doesn't work for me. Really? Right? And the reason why is... Having that morning to just be, yeah, right? To, to just be able to kind of enjoy my cup of coffee and be able to relax, not have tension in my body, is one of the most meditative, helpful things that I do for myself each day. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I want you to think about this. Let's say that you are having a close friend that speaks to you about, hey, can I tell you about something that's a little bit mental health oriented or a deeper subject? Mm-hmm. You're going to want to be fully focused in the conversation. Right. right. And so what's going to happen is your body's going to become a little bit more hyper-focused. Your body's going to become a little bit more tense. And you might find yourself leaning forward. Mm-hmm. The idea of there's really good ways to have posture therapists are not necessarily taught to have good posture because they want to seem inviting. Well, let me be clear. They want to be inviting, but they want their, um, they want their appearance to match their intention. So for me, I'm leaning forward so much and I'm having these more trauma oriented or deeper conversations. So my body's tense the full day and being able to release that tension in the morning and be able to just kind of relax and do a body scan and say, okay, let me just be, is actually my way of preparing for the game, like you said. That makes sense, like the calm before the storm, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of body language within your profession, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's actually, uh, you, I'll, I'll tell you one trick that's kind of that's cool sometimes. So if you are in-depth in, communi- in a conversation with someone, there are times that we'll subconsciously have these like mirror neurons that will mimic the other person. Mm-hmm. And so there's times that, cause we, we, we were both talking about how, like when we cross our legs, right. we've started to switch yeah. because yeah. we wake up after an hour and one <laughs> leg is just gone. Yeah. Um, but when you switch your legs, if you're in a deep conversation, the other person might switch too. Mm. And so that's just one thing that's kind of fun to think about. Do you know you, you're in tune with him if they if they mimic what you're doing too. It's a moment of satisfaction. Right. It's, it's not like something I like. I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm one for two today <laughs> or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But it's just the idea of that's one thing that comes into the idea of how you can see that you are fully in tune with the other person. But I think one of my big things is the idea of if I was seeing me, hmm. am I reinforcing? the idea of talking about some vulnerable or deeper conversations, or am I almost being a barrier to feeling that you can do that? Mm. And there's also times I tell my clients, Hey, here's the deal. 
I hurt my back yesterday. Yeah. I'm going to be leaning back a little bit. And that's just where there's the open communication about it. Don't read into it kind of thing. But I think the body scans is huge. One thing that I, that I speak to sometimes, have you ever heard of progressive muscle relaxation? No. So it's technically, I think it's a mindfulness exercise. Okay. And what it refers to, I combine it with body scans. Maybe actually I've done a meditation where they're like, you know, Relax your legs and then your quads and then yes. your, and then it like yep. work your way up your body. Yep. Okay. okay. That, that's a hundred percent. And the reason is because if we're feeling tense, I, I challenge you to like, like, let's say like your, your shoulders are, your shoulders are a little bit tense mm-hmm. and just try telling your shoulders, Hey, relax. Mm. Nothing's going to change. Right. Or if it does, let me know. Cause I'd be curious what you're doing. But so what this does is. I make up numbers a lot just to explain what I'm trying to name. And so let's say that my muscles are 60% tense from a session that I had, a conversation that we had. Okay. And I can't just tell my muscles to go down to zero or go down at all. If you tense them enough till they go up to like 80% and then you allow your body to release the tension that you're self-creating, you feel this relief, you feel this dopamine response to the idea of relief. You are mm. creating relief, even though it isn't necessarily there. It's, it's one that it's self-created and that relief through your whole body can help create a little bit of that progressive muscle relaxation for yourself and allow yourself to become more comfortable with saying, okay, I'm okay to release some of this tension. Just by telling yourself, release it. Well, so that's saying? the idea of like, so like you're saying, you would start with your legs, you would right, tense right, your right, legs. right. Then you'd release it. Just being aware of it, yep. like mindful of it. Yep. And so you're self-creating the tension to be able to self-create the feeling of relief. Interesting. So like when we talk about the idea of mind-body congruence or how it impacts each other, like even just those kind of things of how you're holding your body or scanning your body to say, wait, why am I holding my body so tense today? Mm-hmm. Can allow us to understand what we, what we might need that day or uh, what is impacting us in certain ways. I like that. And I want to jump into this. This is a great time to transition and, and we'll get to how you interact with your clients, you know, with mentally, physically, but you yourself, you're a runner, um, obviously a mental health professional. What have you learned just yourself about the mind body connection from everything you've learned in school, in your profession, as well as being active? Like how tight is that mind body connection? I think it's huge. I I think I'm going to go back to that term. I said the idea of the biopsychosocial lens, Mm -hmm. right? And so your biology will impact you. If you're not feeling well, it's going to impact you a certain way. If you're hungry, your emotions might be impacted a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. You might be hangry. Um, I know that happens to me sometimes if I'm honest with you. The psychological, the idea of maybe your past, your relationship with your inner self, um, self-esteem, those, those components would be huge. And, al- and also the idea of the social, the social connectedness. And so I like to highlight those three things, not because it leads to more things that we have to keep in mind, but as we have more things to think about, we have more tools that we can create influence with, mm. right? If we're focusing solely on one or the other, and we might realize that we can shift into the psychological thought and say, hey, well, I know that you're trying to release tension in your body. What is it? What is the thought that's creating this tension, right? Mm. So one clinical framework I use is CBT. 
right? It's cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And it connects the idea of how we have these thoughts that lead to emotional responses or emotion responses and a behavior response, right? So we see how they impact each other. And if there's a behavior response that I am clenching my fists, I am sweating or like yelling, like anger is being activated, we can explore the body side of it, but we can also explore the psychological. Hmm. What is the thought that is creating this, this response for you? And so there's different ways and different avenues to create change for yourself, understanding how they interact. Interesting. Um, out of those three, do you think they all affect you evenly? Do you think one prevails more than another? Are you talking about the biopsychosocial? Yeah, biopsychosocial. So, bio, say it again, bio. Biopsychosocial. Psychosocial, yes. Yep. Um, it's hard because I know that if I give an answer, it's going to have a little bit of just personal bias, right? It's mm -hmm. just a natural, natural right. thought process. I'll, be, I'll base the answer on my experience, right? Mm -hmm. Clinical experience. I think psychological is huge. Because psychological, the idea of the mindset, trying to be aware of how these, like the thought is the thing that's activating the emotion and behavior response, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to change the thought is able to impact the other. So that's one example. But also, there's times that the psychological can have positive impacts and negative. Mm -hmm. right? Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into this term of cognitive distortions. Okay. okay. I don't know if that's a term that you've heard, but I'm just mm -hmm. going to kind of yeah. kind of narrate here a little bit. Yep. Like the distortions, they're irrational, shot, irrational thoughts that shape how you see the world, how you feel. Um, and they can be your perception of others, reality around you, or yourself. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Have you... Oh, this is going to be interesting here. <laughs> Have you ever played Mario Kart? Yeah. Okay. So, so I use this uh, with clients a lot. There is a term for a cognitive distortion called disqualifying positive. Okay? Okay. And I'll go back to the Mario Kart, I promise. Yeah, yeah. But what that speaks to is the idea of making progress, but not allowing it to be celebrated. I've completed, I've, let's say I'm reading a book. I read 10, 10 pages today, but I should have read 20. Right? The comma but creates this cognitive distortion that doesn't allow you to have that dopamine create in your brain and you're not reinforcing an action towards a larger goal. Hmm. So I told you I was going back to Mario Kart. I like to sometimes say this. I, I talk in a lot of metaphors. I, mm -hmm. I, I work in a very no, that's, that's, I that's, work in a very abstract world. Well, yeah, that's how you connect with people. Right. That's how you get your point across to someone who doesn't understand the same definition as you do. Exactly. And, right, right. It's a great way to say it. Yeah. And so with Mario Kart, Let's say we're both doing Mario Kart against each other. Okay. Not that I'm trying to be competitive, nothing like that. Uh, life isn't a race, even though I always make the joke that Rascal Flats talks about life being a highway. Life's a highway, baby. And so yeah. what I say is this. If we were going to race, and you, we know nothing about each other, okay. but if I told you you could not hit a single one of the boost or get any of those special boxes, who do you think would win? If, if neither of us could? No, only you. I, oh. can, I can get them. You can't. I would think you would. Right. And so those little boosts, those little rewards to self, is if you mm -hmm. are disqualifying your positive, you're not allowing yourself to get those. Mm. And that's going to reinforce the actions as you move forward. And you, you've talked to some brilliant people on this podcast. 
And they've talked about the idea of trust in the process, Mm -hmm. staying committed. And each of them along their path have allowed themselves to celebrate wins. Right. If you don't, then you start to build fatigue. You start to, to build burnout and all these kind of things can come out that can impact your ability to reach the goals that you have for yourself. So that's one example how the psychological of those three in the biopsychosocial lens can have a little bit of a negative impact on you. That's, I, I get what you're saying. And I, I, off that, I have a question and maybe you can help me think through this because I go back and forth in what I believe and what I'm about to say. Okay. So you hear, based on, you talk about these little wins and how they, they help you mentally almost like change your attitude toward your motivation to keep going mm-hmm. and how you look at things um, and how you continue on. So I've heard people talk about, you know, celebrate the little wins. Every little win matters. Right. But then it's almost like I've also heard people say, you know, you can't celebrate. There's, I, I feel like there's a fine line between celebrating too much and not celebrating mm-hmm. enough. What do you, what do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I feel like if you, if you celebrate too much, you're almost in a state of, you know, giving yourself too much credit instead of continuing to push forward and improve right. because you're, you're busy celebrating and mm-hmm. you're not continue continuing to improve. But then there's also continuing to improve, not being happy with what you're doing, and then you get burned out. Right. So, like, where's that fine line? Or is there? Or it does? is it individual? I think, I think it depends. It, there's a lot of different stuff that goes into it. I think when it comes to, I'm going to talk about, let's say, grit, right? Okay. So, yeah. grit. You're talking about the idea of hard work towards a longer goal for yourself and mm-hmm. celebrating win- wins along the way. So grit, there's a book um, by Angela Duckworth that she speaks very highly of this. I'm big about giving love to the community, my counseling community. Mm-hmm. So I got to make sure I say, right. say authors and make sure that I don't say something and pr- be perceived it's coming from me because trust me, it's a beautiful book. Um, but in that book, she speaks to the idea that grit is a connection to both perseverance and passion. Right. Okay. And so being gritty, being able to work towards this larger goal is what grit. They found that it would, it was able to be, there was a grit survey they did. I believe it was in, they did it in some school systems to predict uh, graduation rates um, and a few other settings. And they found as individuals were working towards these larger goals, as long as they had this level of grit, they were able to turn what was it? I think it was skill times effort was talent or talent, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend I remember all of this completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but spoke to the idea of being able to be gritty in the process. Right. So I think the idea of counting the wins in connection to what you were saying there is trusting yourself to decide what a win means. Right. 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 There was the, uh, in that book, they speak to how there's different levels of goals. Mm. There's high level goals, mid-level goals and low level goals. And not saying that any is not, well, not trying to disqualify the positive of any, I guess I would say. But the idea that sometimes the low level goals, let's say my goal is to increase my marathon time. And one of my low level goals is to have an extra bottle of water a day. Mm. That might seem like a small item. But it's part of the larger system. 
And so being able to allow that, that dopamine response and that reinforcement, I think as long as you see it working towards something that there is a larger goal item that you're striving towards, I think it's an important thing for any aspect of training. Mm. No, that makes sense. And on the flip side of that, I'm sure you can have to, you can have not enough goals to where you gonna burn out at some point. That's right. why I mentioned burnout. I know you got the other book over there, burnout. Yeah. Well, yeah, because burnout. Well, because sometimes I I hear people talk about the idea of. Let, let's say with running. Okay. Right? There's a difference between running when you are hurt versus when you're injured. Yes. Right. Now, I'm not telling anyone who's listening to this to to run through every time they're hurt. Like, right. there's times you got to listen to your body. But burnout versus grit, if you are being gritty and being persever- and persevering, mm-hmm. that's the idea of, like, running when you're hurt. Makes sense. Burnout is a little bit more of the idea of when you are injured and you have to listen to yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as a therapist, therapists have a high rate of burnout. Mm. And being able to understand what I need to... One thing that uh, that this author speaks to is the idea of completing the stress cycle. Okay, so I asked you if you played if you played Mario Kart, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to ask you another question, which is a perfectly normal question to ask. But have you ever had to run away from a lion before? Say that again. Have you ever had to run away from a lion? Have you ever been down the street, saw a lion chasing you, and had to run away? Unfortunately, no. Okay. Yeah. That might be fortunate. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, um, I've never seen a lion. Kind of want to. If it happened, what would you do? If I had to run away from a lion? Well, if you saw one, would you run? Is it looking at me? It's coming at you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, get me out of there. So with burnout, there's a connection to this, um, and it differentiates the idea of the stressor versus stress. Okay. Right? The stressor might not be a surprise. It's the fact that you're going through Main Street and you see a lion looking at you. <laughs> it's a entity. It's something that is causing the the, re, the response for you. Mm-hmm. The, whether it be your biology, neurology, all these different terms are all being activated because it's a fight-flight situation, mm. which this author actually speaks to fight-flight-freeze, which is another thing, but we're not going to dive into that, or at least just yet. But with this, the stressor, if you're running away from a tiger, you might not realize that you stepped on stepped on a rock. You might not realize that you had something kind of like graze your arm and you got a little bit cut there because mm. you're so hyper focused. Right. You are you are in survival mode. Right. And that's what our body does sometimes when we are in this state of working through a stressor. Mm. Now the example they use here is uh, in the book it speaks to the idea of the community kills a lion i got nothing but love for the animals and i'm just going to say it gets safely trapped somewhere okay right? the stressor is i'm going to say conquered hmm. that doesn't mean your body's concluded the idea of the stress response and so finding ways in which to not only understand what your stressors are but being able to understand that the response that your body has is almost completely separate to then say, how can I go about completing that cycle, completing that stress cycle? It might be a run. It might be a conversation with a loved one. It might be picking your favorite song and doing karaoke and doing your favorite dance, whatever it might be. But that's a differentiating when it comes to burnout is the idea of sometimes we are consistently being activated or impacted by stressors, 
but taking the moments that we are not in the influence of the stressor to release that stress mm. to almost refuel, to rejuvenate yourself is a really important thing. It kind of brings it back to just being aware and awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And under, understand what, what's going on within yourself because I feel like <coughs> I, I discovered well, running competitively, you know, last year and stuff. And I know that it's, I didn't understand how runners really got hurt mm-hmm. until I started to run frequently. Yeah. And then I understood. Right. <laughs> so whenever that happened, all these little things came up, these mm-hmm. ache here, pain there. Ooh, that's not a muscle. That's a bone. What's going on there. And it's right. hard to know what is hurt and what is injured. Yeah. How do you know, like, even if I'm aware of that, so going back to your analogy with the lion, how how are you, how do you pay attention and know what's what? Well, you bring up a really good point. Like, let's say, when when we think about the past, I use use the terminology of having reference points, Mm -hmm. right? I have reference points over my lifetime for certain things mm. to like be able to say, oh, well, I know this is it because I've defined what that means. When you go into a new experience like that, you don't really know. Right. And so that is, I don't want to say trial and error, right? But there's certain, like there's warning signs that you might face. Like for example, let's say I, I use the term irritability thermometer sometimes with some of my clients and trying to figure out what our warning signs are. Sometimes I say the Hulk warning signs, because I'm a big Marvel guy. Ooh, okay. okay. And, and it's also the idea, you see the movie, and it's like, oh, here's a concrete example of trying to calm yourself. But sometimes you figure out those warning signs too late. Mm-hmm. And you might have some negative self-talk that comes up from it. Mm. And being able to see it as a gift. Like, let's say you're, you're running, and there's, and there's an injury that you work through. And being able to see it as a gift in the longer journey that you have, right? If I remember when I listened to your conversation with Lucas, mm-hmm. right? I have some fun stories with Lucas and races, by I'm the sure. way. Um, but so Lucas talked about the idea. He highlights um, from what you were saying when he hits that mental block. Mm-hmm. Or not mental block. It was like like when he kind of is having a mile that's a little bit right. um, like a wall for him. Yep. And... With that, I know Lucas, mm-hmm. fantastic dude. And I know that when he sees a wall, he's like, okay, this is something I can improve on. Right. This is a gift to me. Right. And that's the idea of not seeing the moment as the goal, but seeing the journey as the, the delayed gratification. Mm. Do you know, have you, like, so when it comes to immediate versus delayed gratification. That was where I, man, I was going to transition to it. You're, <laughs> you just did it. I got you. Yeah. So. I think that's an, a really big thing, and it's something that I think a lot of the individuals that you ha- have have had on here have spoken to, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This idea of trust the process. Um, I think it was, was it Alex, who is a professional golfer? Um, David. David, you're right. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, I know my boy Alex. I, yeah. I was trying to yeah, think yeah, if there, yeah, was, yeah. there was two Alexes there. I also want to give love to David, sports psychologist. Got to give love to the yeah, community. Dude, and it's, he he spoke very highly in there. Um, but it was the idea of the commitment to the elongated goal. Mm-hmm. So let me, right. quick, let me go quick to the definition of this. Immediate gratification is something that you can take action and see the immediate 
um, conclusion of it or the, the positive aspect of mm-hmm. it. So if, if I am, I'm going to have one right now, if I have a coffee, there's going to be a fairly immediate gratification of quick energy, all these different things. Now, I will tell you, if I have nothing but coffee for three days, there's going to be a d- delayed negative impact. That's yep. a whole other story. Water. I might not have a, have a glass of water and say, man, I feel instantly fantastic. It's a delayed gratification. I understand what it's going to do over time for me. And some of these goals, when you're trusting the process, when you're committed to this, understanding that delayed gratification is the ultimate goal lets those moments of, of challenge, of hardship, be able to be battled through. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like I, and and one thing I I remember I listened to a bunch of these, um, and you're fantastic by the way, I'll be your hype man as well. Thank you very much. Um, but what David, David, a long way to go, but but you're on the journey, right? Yeah. yeah. But David spoke to the idea at one point, and I I don't want to misquote anyone ever, but he spoke to the idea of, he felt that he made steps in his journey, but he didn't qualify for, uh, for whatever he was taking on that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And props to him for being able to say, Hey, I'm pumped about this. Right. Right. It's not immediately gratifying, but I recognize the larger goal for myself. This is going to have a positive delayed impact for me. Yeah. Absolutely. So being able to see both and I'll say there's times I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you here that I, I'm getting, having water and vegetables for every meal. Sometimes I get that soda just to have a little bit of immediate gratification yeah, yeah. and enjoyment. And I think that's a positive thing to do in moderation. But it, is, it does help you work through some of those difficult times sometimes. Absolutely. And a few things off of that. I, I don't want to misspeak, as you said. I heard on a, I've heard on a podcast, someone talk about this recently, though, is talking about when things are hard and you feel like everything in your life is hard, whether it be work or a relationship or a project you're working on. It's hard because you're working through something you've never worked through before. And for lack of a better term, you're about to level up. You're about to learn, Mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't know you're in the process. You don't know you're in the journey, but it's coming in a way. And then I listened to the rich roll podcast and whenever you're talking about delayed versus immediate gratification, um, someone mentioned that always do something for the secondary reward versus the Mm -hmm. primary reward. So anything you want to do, think about the primary reward. Am I doing it for the primary reward? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is going to taste so good, but I'm going to feel like shit later. Or it's like, Oh wow. Um, I mean, you look it up, you look at a, a good marathon training block, you train for three, four months. Maybe five, depending on you know right. your what you've done before, your level of expertise, whatnot, and no, like getting up and and you know it's <laughs> this morning it was like twenty five degrees and you know I got up early to run and there were people already running and so like I was proud of myself for getting up. I'm like wow, you know like yes the 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 secondary reward of this is going to be great. I'm going to be done early running. I'm going to mm-hmm. go home. I'm going to do this and. Um, and I was proud of myself for doing that, but then it impresses me always that there's always someone out there who's doing just as much as I am at the right. same time too. And it, it made me realize of, 
I started to look through a lens where I, we, you and I were talking about this. The book you're reading at whatever time allows you to look through a different lens while you're reading it in mm-hmm. a way. Right. And, um, there's a book I'm about to start. I haven't read it yet. It's okay. called Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Oh, I haven't read that one. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Ellis, who was on, um, recommended it. So I want to read it. But I listened to a podcast with Michael Easter on it. And he talked about the, just, he went, he, you know, as a lot of people do, talk about social media and the immediate hit we get from it. Like there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's no secondary response. If it is, it's just anxiety from, from scrolling and knowing that you wasted time on it. Right. So like even everything I do, I try to tell myself what's the primary, what's the secondary. And that's what I do. But, and I still don't get me wrong. I had, I had a, I had a big root beer the other day. It was, it was (laughs) delicious, but at the same time, so I'll slip up too. But, um, I think being aware and conscious of what the, the secondary um, the delayed gratification, the secondary reward you get is like a huge game changer in like perspective, right. in my opinion. Well, and with the idea of perspective and kind of speaking to components of what you're talking about, there's also the idea of internal validation, mm. right? Versus external. For, versus external, yes. Right, right, right. And so like I've, like when it comes to what you are driving towards, mm-hmm. Let me use it as an example. I don't want to necessarily like use a certain um, athlete of my own, but like I'll present a hypothetical situation. Mm-hmm. Let's say that when it comes to race day for a for a mile, mm-hmm. I have an athlete that each week has won the race, right? Just with the individuals they face and also the hard work they're putting in, mm-hmm. they've finished in first each time. And then let's say that one of the best runners in the state happens to be in the district over and there's a race that they are not, or they do not finish first, Mm -hmm. but they PR, they get a personal record. There will be a very different response if the person bases their success off external validation, the idea of coming in first, or the idea of internal validation, being proud of what they've completed. And you mentioned the idea. I was proud of what I was doing. And there were people out there even before me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you were still able to validate yourself in the process. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge piece that that we spoke about, um, like in my coaching time. But I think it also is a huge piece that I talk about now in my current role Mm -hmm. with working, Mm -hmm. working as a therapist. Because being able to internally validate yourself and be proud of yourself, having that self-love is huge. Mm-hmm. It is not an easy journey to get to, but when, when that is something that is, when that's a muscle being practiced, it's a huge level of empowerment for whether it be elongated goals, whether it be what you aspire for later in life, all these different things. Internal validation is a key piece there. That's a great, yeah, great point. And I will say it, it's, it is. How do you get, but I've, I've been in a point in my life too, where internal validation is so hard to get to that point. Right. You know, you're so fixated on external validation that internal doesn't mean anything. How do you flip that switch? Is it immediate or, or is it just small steps or how, how do you, how do you turn that around? 
one, so there's a lot of things that go into it. One, one place that my mind goes to is the idea of goal setting, Hmm. right? When we think about goals, whether it be running in a training program or whether it be a mental health goal that you're taking on for that week or that month is trying to have, I don't know if you ever heard the acronym SMART, like a SMART goal. I will always make the joke that I'm not saying that goals that are not smart are dumb, (laughs) but SMART stands for the idea of being specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time oriented. Mm. Now, one of the big things I do goal setting with all my clients. Okay. Right. And it's an, it's an individualized process. I ensure that we're using language that is theirs, that it captures what they're looking for. And sometimes the goal we name is one of those larger goals, right? The idea of, I want to become a better version of myself. I want to increase my emotional regulation skills. The hard part is when do we know we've reached it and that we can be proud of ourselves for reaching it if we don't know how to define it. Right. Now I'm not discrediting or saying anything negative about these larger goals. Like we're saying before, it can be a part of a, a larger journey for yourself, which is awesome. But if you feel like there are times that you're not really achieving the goals for yourself, it might be because you're setting mid-level goals when you have to begin with those lower levels. Again, if I'm specific with the idea of I want to become a better at, and not, this is not my specific example, but I want to be a better athlete, hmm. um, what does that look like? It's like, right. okay, well, my goal this week, a smart goal for myself, hmm. is being able to have three, health, three healthy meals, three healthy full meals a day. Mm-hmm. And then validating myself at the conclusion of that. That's the thing that can help us work through some of those challenges. Small wins. Small wins. Going back to those small yeah, wins man. piece. Because well, I've, I've set big goals too. And sometimes you look at the big goal and you don't have little goals to get there. And you're like, how do I get there? But I always forget like the snowball effect of small goals mm-hmm. and how like they can, you know, it's almost like, um, there was a Marine who did a, gave a speech. I think it was, uh, at a graduation ceremony and it's a famous one. I forget his name, but he said, wake up, make your bed. Yep. That's what I thought you were Get going. Your, start yep. your goal. You do one thing yeah. that's going to lead you to do thing number two yeah. and then thing number three. And then just the snowball effect, you know, right. get up, get going. And so, yeah, like small goals. I think that's right. a good point. Yeah. Well, and another term that we use is a uh, behavior activation. Right. right. So let's say, for example, that we have some depressive symptoms going on and we're in a negative feedback loop. Hmm. Right. We don't have energy. So you don't have energy to complete tasks that would be rewarding to you. So you're not having that dopamine. So you're not getting the reward. So you don't gain the energy to do the things that you want to do. Hmm. And there's a lot more complexities to that. But that's a way to think about it. Behavior activation is the idea of, okay, you know what, today I'm going to go out and get a, get a bottle of water from the fridge. Next time I go out, I'm going to, I see there's a newspaper on the counter. I'm going to grab it um, and read some stuff while I'm in my room. The next time you go out to get a glass of water, you see someone watching TV, you watch it with them. It's the small wins that create change mm-hmm. and allowing yourself to reinforce those. I mentioned the cognitive distortions earlier. Another cognitive distortion that sometimes I talk about is all or nothing thinking. If, if it's the idea of, okay, well, it's progress towards the goal. If we are, are, if we're an all or nothing thinker, if it's not everything, it's nothing. 
And so being able to say, oh, this is progress. Like this is a positive step where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And to validate it, that reinforces growth towards the larger goals that we have. Right. The foundation, small, small wins. I know whenever my, my dad was a football coach and mm-hmm. every week, once a week, they would do drills called ABCs. Going back to the basics, the fundamentals, mm-hmm. right? Catch ball around the clock for receivers. You know, you do the small drills because if you just keep running into each other you're and you know running play after play after play you're going to forget the small things and it's the small things that make a big difference right so like for you know physical sports you know doing abcs helps you keep muscle memory doing things correctly you know do the small things is there are there any any version of abcs or fundamental things um, I guess, I guess with your clients, I guess it's just setting small goals. Is that kind of your ABCs that you do with them? Yeah, it's, I, I would say goal setting is one exploring behavior activation is one because sometimes what I'll do with behavior activation is the idea. Let's say we'll make like a little bit of a chart mm-hmm. and we'll say there's a level of difficulty and a level of reward for okay. each behavior activation item. Okay. And so if my goal is to have a healthy meal, mm-hmm. And one of my items is cook a, cook a five-star meal, like from scratch, like make right. this fantastic thing. Ten, level 10 reward, level 10 difficulty. Let's, let's just pretend there's a day I don't have level 10 energy after a day <laughs> of work, right? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean I have to step into the all or nothing and say, okay, well, I'm going to Bojangles. And right. I'm not speaking ill of Bojangles. You know, I eat, I eat <laughs> no. a fair amount of that. No, no, no. But saying, okay, how can I accomplish this goal in a different way? Mm. And say, okay, well, a level seven would be I pick up something from the grocery that's like pre-made maybe or has to go into the oven. It doesn't take as much investment. It's a level seven, level seven reward, but it also is something that I'm proud of being able to do do what I did with the energy that I had at that mm. time. Mm-hmm. So, Recognizing the energy you have. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of the body scan, the idea of checking in with yourself and the understanding that this moment doesn't, doesn't define you. It's the process in which got you to that moment. Right. right. Like for example, I, I think it was, it was Miley Cyrus that said it's the climb. And then I think it was also <laughs> Hannah Montana that said nobody's perfect and, oh bo- and both God. were brilliant. Did you just tie um, both of those in together? Yeah. Was, oh yeah. Wow. Well, well, they intertwine a little bit. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to explain why, no. but <laughs> being able to allow yourself to be okay with the process yeah, is not the easiest thing. It's a little bit of a vulnerable feeling, mm-hmm. but as long as you can understand what it is you're striving towards and you're able to reinforce that action within yourself, create some of that, that motivation and that dopamine, like that boost with that Mario Kart metaphor perspective, that is what gets you to the elongated goals. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's transition into the, uh, the research articles that we've been talking about. So I will tell you this: you asked for a little bit of like a research perspective. I asked for a little. I bit. I sent you. You gave bits. me a lot, bit Chris. I, I gave you a lot, <laughs> bit. No, I and honestly, when I first started to read that first one, there were because it is a, it's research based off of other research papers, and they pulled. Hold on, let's see if I can find the exact number. Um, but they they oh here we go. They started out with 29,851 <laughs> papers, 
And then based off of, you know, studies imported from screening, they eliminated some. Duplicates removed, they eliminated some. Records after duplicates. So they, they dwindle it down to, I believe, 116 articles. Yeah, so there wasn't that much I sent you. No, but honestly, so whenever you read these and, you know, there were little conclusions at the end of these mm-hmm. um, and they summarized them very well but reading through them I didn't read a single one that had anything negative to say about the relationship between running and mental health mm-hmm. yeah I, and for those of you that don't know what we're looking at I sent a hundred pages of PDF literally to, to no I think, it was like, I think it was like and, 75 Five-ish, well, and I'll be, I'll be clear with this. In my line of work, mm-hmm. if I say something, I want it to be clinically proven, mm. right? Right. I don't want to misguide anyone, and so I was like, as we present some of these things, I want to make sure that we almost have our kind of like self accountability of, yeah. oh, there's things that we're pulling from that say this, right? And you're right. There were a lot of positive um, conclusions from this research, and a lot of it. Like there was one, I think it was based in the uh, based over in uh, Western Australia, I think. Yes, and it the was the law and psychology one. Yes, yeah, and so that explored the idea of how can running impact mental health for a uh, two separate groups of psychology students and law students, and it was interesting to me they chose those two areas. Um, I also don't want to name things that are not in the study. Just being a psychology person, I was like, oh, this is... And I have law friends. I was yeah. like, now I'm curious about if we could do our own study. Yep. But what they found was being able to have consistency of running increased well-being, self-esteem, decreased symptoms of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And a difficult thing that I just want to name, working in a very abstract field trying to see how research um, solidifies or um, defines or makes concrete nature of some of these words. Like you can look at it and the definition of emotional distress is needed to be defined in each of these studies because it's an abstract uh, terminology. There's ways you can can make it a little bit more concrete, but it's just one piece that I like to make sure we are exploring there. So like GAD7, PHQ9, I'm not just speaking in code here. <laughs> um, those are like assessments that are used for depression and anxiety. Yeah. So understanding that some of these studies use these these measurements, these assessments to, to find this data. Again, it doesn't necessarily change what we're going to say, but I just want to ensure that we're educating um, in the manner that is appropriate. Mm-hmm. And so going through it, one of the things that that study in particular spoke to, going back to this biopsychosocial lens, was the social connection, hmm. right? Um, they were finding that some of these law students felt like they were kind of in a competitive nature with other students and a little bit of isolation in the work that they were doing. And similar with psychology students, a little bit less from what they were finding. But being able to increase that, that social connection and then being able to have that reinforce a psychological aspect of, okay, I don't have to necessarily hold on to this tension in my body. I don't have to, uh, step away. Cause there was, there, they mentioned some nerves of, I mean, we're talking about distance running. You've talked about it in some of these podcasts. 
I think some. I think it might have been Lucas talking about twenty mile runs. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, twenty miles takes a little bit. Oh yeah, right. And so, like, time. for for some of these students, the idea of going for a twenty mile run yeah. when I'm trying to complete a project by by midnight is terrifying. Yeah. At the same time, one of the big things is trying to figure out not necessarily this. This is off the. It's connected to this, but not necessarily written in the the study I'm mentioning. There's a difference between efficiency and purposefulness, mm. right? Efficiency is the idea of trying to continue to do something as fast as possible. Purposefulness is choosing actions that allow you to work towards your goal. Uh, and I'll kind of narr- I'll kind of uh, exemplify it with this. I don't know much about NASCAR, right? I'm just going to name that into existence. They turn left. And that's, that's really the only thing I need for this metaphor. So yep. I'm going to talk about how they turn left. Because mm-hmm. there is one turn that you can make, is that's when you, that's when you go into the pit, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so let's say that we have a, a vehicle that has a flat tire. Maybe a little bit of a, a, a big example, but we're going to use it for this one. If you tried, in a very, very slow way, that car can keep moving forward. Right. Yeah. Or like whatever, like it would be like kind of like a small, a small uh, difficulty for the no, car. Yeah. Maybe a flat yeah. tire might stop it. I'm not, I'm not an expert in that area, um, but it can keep moving forward. That might be the idea of trying to be efficient. Mm. Right. I need to keep moving. I need to keep moving. Right. It connects to burnout symptoms. I need to keep moving. I need to keep moving. Yeah. You can move forward, but at the same time, if we were purposeful and we stopped being efficient for one moment, went into the pit, got a new tire, and then started rolling, literally, <laughs> then that will allow us to move towards our goal in a, I guess, a better way. And so that's what they found here is taking that moment to step away from the stressor. I'm, I'm putting all these buzzwords together. But stepping away from the stressor to deal with the stress then allowed them to deal with the stressor in a little bit of a healthier way. So being purposeful is almost more efficient than just trying to be efficient. Correct. Purpose, purposefulness can bring forth an increase in efficiency. Mm. But efficiency doesn't mean that you're being purposeful. Because the idea, let's say I'm trying to be efficient for a long period of time. If I'm trying to be efficient and I get burnt out, I wasn't being purposeful by nature towards my elongated goals. Right. And so that, that's a word. It's funny as a therapist, there are some words that I'll hear, like if someone says... I should have done this. Like, it's almost like in, in your head, you're like, nah, don't use that word. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so efficiency is kind of one of those for me as well. It's like, well, can we explore a different type of word that allows us to feel more confident moving forward? Hmm. Yeah, that almost reminds me of the slogan. I forget what military branch it is, but it's uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Oh, okay. I know. Okay. I was thinking about that one. I mm-hmm. like that, you know? Yeah. Anytime I'm, I'm moving slow, you know, on, I'm on a long run, a zone two run, and I'm like, deep and i'm like you know oh man i'm like i look at my watch and i'm like i'm moving slow right now but i'm like slow is smooth smooth is fast and i just keep i like remind because i know that i'm running slow purposefully yep because i'm running my slow run slow running my fast runs fast even though it's slow it's not a fish maybe not as efficient as running fast mm-hmm. but it's getting me to my goal faster mm-hmm. because i'm running slower right it's a mind bend Speaking of running and research, can I throw something random at you? Absolutely. So I was looking at different stuff um, today, actually. And I, you've talked with a few people about a runner's high. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And so that's a, t- that's a term that you hear a lot, but I wanted to kind of look at it a little bit more because I was curious about speaking about different chemicals, dopamine, all these different things. And you mentioned the idea of endorphins, mm-hmm. right? So when you, when you have a runner's high, do you, would you say you kind of, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but do you connect that to endorphins a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I would. So and what I found is it's not necessarily endorphins that create a runner's high. Really? Yeah, it is. I've always just heard, you know, you got the endorphins going, you got the, but what is it? So let me make sure I can kind of speak to this in a little bit of an educated way. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, like I said, you got to give love. John Hopkins had a researcher, um, it looks like David Linden. Uh, wrote about this and talked about this, that endorphins have a difficult time passing the blood-brain barrier, right? Mm-hmm. So they might at times come into play, but they're not, all, they're not also the strongest impacting piece. Okay. A different thing that they talked about is, I got to make sure I can say this correctly, so give me one <laughs> moment here. Yeah. Endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Yep. Yep. And I was looking at it and I was like, what? Because for me, I've always thought of endorphins. Yeah. And I was like, I talk about dopamine, all these different things. And I was like, oh, there's actually a different chemical. And I was like, what does this even mean? It sounds like you, you knew about it. I, I just read it. And I think it's a book you'd be interested in. It's, it's written by a biology professor who and it's called, I think it's called Why We Run. Um, and he ties in all of the biology work he's done not on humans mm-hmm. but on bugs specifically beetles yep and other animals like the camel um uh the gazelle no i'm sorry the antelope and a few other animals and i actually just got to the point where he's tying into like the feel good stuff okay oh, and i i read it once that's why whenever you said it i was like ooh, i know what that is mm-hmm. um I don't know much about it, but, but you saying it kind of, yeah. Yeah. I was just looking through it and I was like, I, cause I'll be transparent. I'd never heard of the term hmm. and honestly, probably after this, I'm buying that book that you're mentioning, but like looking at it, I was like, Oh, this is wild. And mm-hmm. I think you, you, I forgot you, you might've been talking to Lucas about this with the runner's high. And I think there's so much that goes into it. There's the biological component like this, right? Mm-hmm. This is the biochemistry in the brain, so it's going to have a direct connection. There's the psychological, if you feel like you're making growth, and there's the social connection, if you can feel like you're a part of a, like a larger entity than yourself. Like when you go into a race and you finish a marathon, you might want to celebrate. For me, I think I fell over, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I couldn't celebrate after. I was yeah. Give me the car. Yeah, so, yeah. but... That was just one thing that as I'm talking about biological components, I was like, you know what? Let me think, let me look at the biochemistry one time. Um, and so it was just an interesting fact I wanted to add in when you said the idea of research. Yeah. Interesting. You know what I did notice? Um, you know, obviously these, um, and, and first of all, whenever you sent me these articles, remember I texted you, I was like, man, these are dense. But then I thought about it and I'm like, what did, what did I expect? Like I asked mm-hmm. him, I asked, you know, someone who, looks at these for his profession to send me this. Like I, I shouldn't have expected anything else. So mm-hmm. after I thought about that, I'm like, okay, this, this is what I asked for. I just but gave, but I, I, I've enjoyed it. I right. read through them and it was great. I'm like, honestly, I wouldn't want anything less than this. So I'm right. glad you sent it. Um, but one of the things that stuck out to me, page 26, 
Oh, I got to go. Okay, let's see. So page 26. And it is, it's a small part of the top of the page. Which one are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at the, oh, I'm looking at the, um, the review between running mental health one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a scoping review, <laughs> scoping review. So this says a number of studies looked at specific populations. One investigated the impact of 10 organized runs on homeless people and found significant positive correlation with perceived self-sufficiency. Hmm. And when I read that, um, like it, it, that, that's the only sentence it says about it in there. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's that one sentence that pops out and you're like, I did not expect that to be in there. Right. You know, like the fact that they attempted a study on homeless people and the fact mm-hmm. that homeless people were willing to do it mm-hmm. thinking it might improve their lives. Right. And then seeing that it actually did was like a whoa, like moment yeah. for me in a way. Like self-sufficiency mm-hmm. for homeless people. Like that, for someone who, you know, is obviously struggling in life and getting a sense of self-sufficiency by doing some form of running routine for however long, that's pretty powerful, Yeah, I feel like. Um, oh, absolutely. That's well, nuts. You want to know what's really funny? You're presenting this research basis. I'm going to quote a very wise individual that we both know. Okay. And that is Alex. Okay. Okay. Krause? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Not David, who I thought was Alex. Yeah. Like, yeah. like our real Alex. Alex, and he, he right now he's listening and being like, what did I say? He, he spoke to this piece of the idea of running being a numerical number that tells you if you failed or succeeded in getting better. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I read that and I was immediately like, I got to write this down. Yeah. Like, I, I got to put this down because it, it's true. It's, there's the idea of the internal validation of the process, but it is externally validating with the idea that running has the ability to exemplify growth. Yeah. Right. And I want to be very clear and respectful in the communication about the homeless community. So I don't want to assume any components or anything like that. Right. But I would say the idea that being able to step into something that is able to create that feeling, that measurement, that numeric is going to let you feel empowered. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Be, being able to feel self-efficient, being able to create something, being able to grow. And it's a really good point that you're, you're bringing out with that piece and uh, working with that population. That would be the way in which I would hear it and see it as something that can be really powerful for, for, right. for that group. Yeah. And I, I didn't bring it up because... I wanted to make a point like, oh, look, it can help anyone. I wanted to bring a point because honestly, when I read it, it made me smile. Yeah. Because oh, when yeah. I read it, I'm like, no way. Like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Like that they were willing to do this. Someone was willing to do this who didn't have to. Yep. And they did it. They stuck to it and they got something positive out of it. And honestly, I'm, I'm someone who really didn't understand why people ran until like a year ago. Yeah. And so seeing the, just the effects it's had on me, like the effect it can have on someone who didn't have to do it, but they did it right. and it made a big impact on their life. I don't know. Just, um, was that, that much more, that it just gave me that much more evidence that really it can do so much for you. Oh, and yeah. I, I there, it's, it's almost, I don't even know how to explain it really. 
Yeah. Like I've, I've talked to, it's funny because like my, my dad who was never a runner either started being a runner right around the same time I was. And he's like, man, I, he's 55. And he's like, I wish I learned this Mm -hmm. 40 years ago. Right. And I mean, I'm 27 and I wish I would have learned about it 10 years ago, you know? And it's like, it's wild, but no, I bring that up because it brought a smile to my face. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's one way, one, one piece to look at it. And it's funny. I'm looking at a couple notes I made from some of the podcasts for people that you had on and one thing that our boy Ryan Horgan mm-hmm. spoke to was the idea. There are times it was a focus of it's you versus the course. Yeah. With cross country. I, know, right. I don't have experience with cross country. I'll be clear with that. Mm-hmm. I did track. Um, and I think a connection that running has, uh, running has a lot of these biochemical pieces, but also it's a mindset, right? right? When, when you look at a course and you say, you know what? I don't care who's on this course. I will internally validate myself. Um, uh, a mantra that we spoke to when I was coaching is there is only two, two competitors in this race and it's you and the clock, mm-hmm. right? Similar to Ryan with you in the course. Mm-hmm. But I think that perspective, one, it cultivates internal validation, but it also cultivates the idea of this is my journey and I'm going to conquer it. Mm-hmm. And being able to have a numeric that exemplifies growth, being able to create goals that allow yourself to to validate the, the, the commitment that you're doing. Those are the pieces that is a mindset of running that can correlate very directly with the, with a, a mindset that you can have with life. Right. right. So earlier you mentioned that, you know, when you were a school counselor and a track coach, you separated the two, you didn't bring any bias into the classroom, you know, into the counseling office whenever you were with a student, you know, even if you wanted them to try track or, or a sport, you kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you separated the two, which is impressive, um, being young and a professional who has the ability to do that. Right. But so now that you're in a position where you're not a track coach, but you understand the benefits of it, of, of physical exertion, just any physical activity, let alone running, what kind of, do you ever talk about, you know, physical activity with your clients and stuff? Oh yeah. Um, Sometimes what we'll do is we'll do, I do a self-care assessment with my clients Mm -hmm. and it speaks to many different areas. Oh, I'm trying to think now there's five sections, uh, cause self-care kind of feels like an umbrella term, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And it's one that I'm using a fair amount. I'll tell you that in my Mm -hmm. job. And so I like this assessment because it breaks down self-care into a couple different categories. Now here's the the question. If I can name all five, uh, we got physical, we got emotional, we got, oh, here we go. We got professional, mm-hmm. social. Get there. Did I say spiritual yet? No. Okay. So those, those are the five. And with each of those five, there are different kind of uh, bullet point items that you have to rate yourself. How, how are you doing with this uh, this week or today? Okay. And I like using that because what it cultivates is the idea of, it's like the all or nothing thought process. Mm-hmm. Are you self-caring? No. Yes. It's like, whoa, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> like let, let me yeah. like figure this out more. And so we look at physical self-care, and there are times we're putting a lot of good work into the emotional self-care where our mind and our body doesn't have congruence. Hmm. We're, not, we're not allowing that same relief or outlet in the other areas. For example, I might be focusing every day on meditation and having uh, some professional boundaries and keeping for myself, but if I don't sleep, I'm out. 
Like it's, mm. it's that simple. It's going to balance the idea of finding balance exactly with the different areas of self care is a similarity to the idea of finding balance and congruence with your body and your mind. And there's times that you can focus on both. And there's times that you got to focus on one a little bit more than the other. Have you, whenever you go over this analysis with your clients and you talk about the physical, um, do any, do any of them like express, you know, uh, a want to be more physically active that maybe aren't, they don't come from that background. They're not in that world. Mm -hmm. Maybe they ask you suggestions. Do you ever run into that? Yeah. A lot of times what I hear is the idea of it's daunting. Oh, right. Right. Or let's think about going to the gym. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of variables that come into play with going to the gym, whether it be a financial component, um, whether it be a social anxiety component, um, all these can be barriers that can keep us from accomplishing that goal. I've had times with self-care, the first step that we've taken is not stopping at the mailbox. Like when you're driving up, like not stopping at your mailbox, mm-hmm. but pulling your car off the driveway and walk into the mailbox and back mm. creating change in a way that we can exemplify to ourselves that we can, we can allow ourselves to validate that movement in, in a positive direction because if we haven't been doing physical self-care and the first step is trying to go bench in the weight room at your, your local, yeah. your local planet fitness, like I give props to you if that's what you can do. But a lot of times that's, that's a daunting goal, Yeah, right? right? We might work towards it, but finding ways that we can decrease barriers and decrease different variables that might come into play that could limit us from doing it and saying, if someone says, oh, well, I would easily go for a walk, like if it was in the woods and no one could, no one, like, well, I'll say no one, I want everyone to be safe, right. uh, but right. like where it's not as public versus like walking around like a public track, mm. let's do it. Right. Let's, let's find ways to, to make movement in the way that you feel is important to you. I like to communicate that it goes back to that lens. I try to think about the biopsychosocial because that's a way in which I can objectively which is like a big thing within my work is trying to be subjective and objective, Mm -hmm. right? The subjectiveness of wanting to, um, for example, if someone has emotional connection to their words, there's subjectivity to them. Right. Um, If I'm talking to you about the three lens of biopsychosocial and communicate to me how you feel each of those lenses are going, I'm staying objective. I'm not having any bias go into play. And so this is where we are. If tomorrow we're one step closer to a bigger goal, do we celebrate that? Right. And for my clients, yes. I, I like to refer to myself as a professional hype man, <laughs> right? That, and, wow. Yeah. And, and, and cool. it truly is. Like, and some of my clients I've been seeing for a long time know that about me. Like, and they'll even stop themselves. And it's like, I know what you're going to say. I said, comma, but I should have put a period. And they like kind of know <laughs> what's up. But like, because of the repetition, it helps cognitively restructure which is the terminology of the idea. If you start, if you stop going comma, but, and instead start putting a period and then have a second sentence, mm-hmm. you cognitively restructured. Right. So that's what that terminology means. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm the, I'm the annoying dude that keeps saying, Oh no, not doing that. Now I'm also very respectful in my sessions. I'm not saying yeah, like, yeah, got yeah. you one for me. Like, no, right, I'm, right, I'm not right. doing You're making that. them aware of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. being able to have that reminder and then being able to celebrate when these things are being conquered is the piece that lets us move move forward in the ways that we want to. How satisfying is it when you find that 
one area that someone is missing, one of those five areas, and you start to fill it and see a huge impact oh, on their life. With the with the self care areas, yeah, it's it's so fun. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to connect something. Yeah. The same way I discuss being a coach okay. is similar in a way, in a different role to that of being a therapist, mm-hmm. right? A clinical term, um, I think it's a, a CBT perspective, but it's homework, right? I give homework to my clients mm-hmm. mostly because, well, truthfully, not mostly, truthfully is because I value that they are committed to this process and the time in between our sessions, I want to ensure they have something they can complete, right? Or something mm-hmm. they can take on for that week. Um, but being able to, as a coach, what, what I was saying with the coach, knowing that you don't have full control, but the amount of joy you feel in seeing the joy of another person, right? You, some of these athletes that ran PRs, um, I had some athletes like go into like, um, like county and state levels and seeing them proud of their own successes, right? Mm-hmm. Proud of their own empowerment, their own, their own, uh, autonomy, all these different things is the same thing I see as a therapist. Mm. The idea of a, a lot of times if someone says thank you to me. I say, Hey, I'm just, well, I'm just, I'm happy to, I'm grateful to be a part of this process. I'm grateful to be a part of your journey, mm. but you're the one putting in the work. Right. Right. I'm, I'm a dude you talk to once a week and present some ideas, but you're the one putting them into practice. So I think it is incredibly rewarding. I don't want to say gratifying. Gratifying to me kind of feels like it's for me, like it, like I'm gratified. You're by doing it. it for that purpose. Right. Right. Uh, even though it is. I'll, I'll objectively say it is gratifying. Right. But it's so rewarding. Yeah. Like seeing yeah. that growth, understanding it's something that you don't have full control of, but you were able to have a positive influence and you were able to assist the person in their own personal empowerment. Very cool. Very cool. It almost sounds like being a coach, being a therapist, so similar. It's almost like, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a parent, so I can't say it, but it's almost like you're a parent in a way. It's like you can instill what you know and then just let them go. See if, Mm -hmm. see if they do it and see if they learn or, you know, what they do with it in a way. Yeah. You know? Which is incredibly daunting. Yeah. <laughs> the idea yeah. of, okay, well, I, I've done everything I could, so what do I do now? Yeah. And it's like, well, you just, you model. It's almost like, like how, how you present it, because you can, you know what you want to say, but how you present it is almost just as important too. Yeah. To get, to get them to understand the message or to implement it or whatever. But yeah. It sounds like you're doing some great work, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. No, and it kind of goes absolutely. back to like, but my, my head coach I worked with, the idea wasn't necessarily always what was said. It was what's being communicated in the process. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what is, um, one last question. What's yeah. something about you that most people wouldn't, wouldn't think of by, wouldn't think about you by meeting you? Interesting question. Okay. An interesting thing about me that you wouldn't... Maybe something you like, a, a hobby, or um, you know, a genre of music you like, or whatever. I'll, I'll tell you this. It connects to some of the topics that we're discussing. Okay. But it might surprise you, because you, you, you know me. Mm-hmm. You, you know me. Yeah. My journey with mental health and my journey with running mm-hmm. was brought forth by the same thing. 
and that was anger. Like when I was younger, I would, there was a lot of anger that, that I went through. Really? And it was the idea of I wanted to be a protector to people I cared about. I wanted to be able to control situations to assist the people that, I, that was in my close proximity. And I, and I kept trying to say, how can I accomplish this about something that I couldn't control? Hmm. Right? Right. And so I don't know if I told you this story. The first time that I really ran, we had an eastern trail that's by where I live up okay. north. It's kind of in the woods. I dead sprinted. I could I could I could lie and say two miles, but I'm pretty sure I went like maybe <laughs> three quarters of a mile. Yeah. Um because I it was it was something I could feel control of, right? Mm-hmm. I could feel like I could I could have that connection with mind and my body. If you are wanting to put in work, if you're wanting to be angry, put let it out. And I did that. I Luckily, it didn't really black out, black out. Like, it wasn't a, a, a dangerous situation. But I turned back, and there were fireflies that cool. lit my entire way back. Yeah. It was wild to me. As I think about it, I wonder if it was me just, like, being lightheaded and seeing stuff in the air. But I think yeah. it truly was fireflies. Um, but I think that's one thing people don't know about me. Because I made something that was my challenge my goal. Hmm. Right. I recognized that there were times that I was angered by this. And if I wanted to step away from control and step into influence, then I could do that by regulating my emotions, by learning more about myself, by learning more about people and how I could help them. How can I make um, the community at large a little bit of a, um, I don't want to say better, it's kind of a subjective term, but how can I assist others how can i advocate for others Mm -hmm. and being able to step out of the frustration of not having control and step into the motivation for influence was really my beginning to my running journey my mental health journey personally to be honest with you um but also professionally so i think when you see me now you may not necessarily say oh that oh that dude used to be angry but i will present it as a vulnerable vulnerable part about myself because i am grateful of the growth I've made. Hmm. And so sometimes the things that motivate us are the things that have been hardships in the past. And whether it be motivations for change or values that you have, um, that's the way that you can do some of the, the goal setting that we're talking about today. Good point. I, I did not know that about you. Um, yeah. But it makes sense because some of the calmest people you'll meet have been through some of the most like furious or angry times in the past and mm-hmm. it's almost like that fury like makes you calm afterwards like coming out of the storm and, right you know so you see like a lot of like <laughs> athletes who push themselves so much like they're so calm afterwards because right you know what they're going through now is nothing as what it used to be so yeah you re- you recognize how important some of these things are to you yeah. and you decide what you yeah. want to do with it moving forward yeah chris Thanks for coming on, man. We'll do it again. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.